this week on Life and Faith. None of those same textbooks had a chapter on how to console someone or on how to encourage someone. The implicit message of the textbooks was that the reason why we learn other people's languages is so that we can obtain the goods and services that we deserve and so that we can tell people about ourselves. It wasn't that the people who speak those languages are important. I lost my mom when I was 14 years old. Whatever's going on in their life and whatever experiences they may have had, they've got something to give. I was absolutely stunned as to how a family could survive that. I still don't know that guy's name. Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Natasha Moore. Simon's away this week, and in his absence, I'm bringing you this conversation I had about something that's very present in the Australian social landscape, but that might look like a bit of an historical anomaly. Christian education has been in the news a bit lately. About a third of Australian schools are religious, and more than 90% of private schools. Why are so many parents who don't consider themselves religious so keen to send their kids to Christian schools? What do you get from a so-called Christian education? Are these meant to be nice bubbles, teaching kids nice Christian-ish values? To what extent is Jesus involved? And what happens when religious education goes wrong? This is part of the fabric of our life together, so it's worth thinking about what's going on there. David Smith is an education professor at Calvin University in Michigan, and he's been thinking about this stuff for decades. I asked him some of the pointy questions around this, and he also covered a bunch of things I'd never thought about before, like how you know what a maths textbook does and does not look like, and what that says about how you see life. I started off by asking him about why this can be such a controversial topic. Well, I mean, education is is something that makes people nervous in general, right? Education's where you invest in the future shape of your society, it's where you make decisions about who you want to hang out with and who you don't want to hang out with. It's we've, we've typically used education to stratify our societies or to try to unite our societies. So there's, there's typically just a lot of emotional or political social freight wrapped up in schools. So once you start attaching the beliefs and values of a specific community to schools, then it very easily starts to turn into a, uh, uh, you know, these are the schools of my tribe or um, mm. these are the schools of their tribe and we'd really rather not have them. So, so yeah, it's really not surprising that we get some some sound and heat around uh, around faith and schooling, uh, especially in in pluralist contexts where where the faith is not taken for granted. I mean, the, the times and places where that doesn't happen is where everybody thinks they have more or less the same faith, whether they do or not. But uh, where that's contested, then schools are going to be contested as well. So, do you think there are some potential negatives? when faith-based education, say, is not done well? Yeah, I mean, faith-based education is its a problematic category to start with because uh, I'd also want to say that there's no such thing as non-faith-based education in that, uh, especially those interested in faith-based schools, we typically want to say, you know, public schools are not schools that have no values or no narrative or no um, no ideas floating around in their content that might actually be be controversial. So it's not like there's, there's vanilla neutral education versus faith-based education that's suddenly adds a specific set of beliefs about the world or a specific set of values. And a second reason why faith-based schooling might not be a simple category is that like pretty much every other human endeavor, you can do it in pretty interesting ways and you can do it in pretty horrible ways. So um, 
So I think it's possible for faith-based schooling to turn into just trying to build a tight little enclave to protect my own small community from contamination from any other kinds of human beings. It's possible to actually make them very uneducational uh, because you really just want to defend all of your particular assumptions and prejudices about the world uh, and not question things and try to create a space where you don't have to think. Uh, I also think that's actually quite rare that most of the faith-based schools that I visit and work with really aren't like that, that that's also a bit of a caricature. Uh, You run into it every now and then, but... um, but when I actually visit faith-based schools, especially ones that are at all well-established or you know of any substance, uh, you, you find thoughtful people, often very well-qualified people. You find people who are keeping up with, uh, with what's going on in education, who are often trying to keep up with what's going on in culture and philosophy and so on, but are trying to think about how to, uh, how to take a run at all of that in a way that's, that's informed by their, their Christian commitments. In Australia in particular, um, this will be true to some extent of other countries as well, Um, but here we have this situation where a lot of people who are not themselves Christians are keen to send their children to Christian schools. Do you have a sense of why that might be? What's, What's attractive about it? I think Christian schools can be attractive people for a lot of reasons. I mean, sometimes they can be attractive to uh other people of faith. So there are places where Muslims choose Christian schools because it's the non-secular option option in the area. Um, There are places where people choose Christian schools because of cultural histories, right? Because they associate Christianity somehow with with a particular kind of perhaps declining values, uh, with with sort of honesty and uprightness. And uh, sometimes it can be even that somehow certain kinds of Christian schools are sort of associated with a certain decorum or a certain, you know, with uniforms and and this kind of thing. So uh, I think there's a recognition that that when you go to school, you're not just learning to do mathematics or to do science. You're also learning how to interact with other people and what kind of person to become. And so I think a lot of parents rightly look for a school that's explicit and articulate about what kind of formation it's offering students in terms of their, you know, their overall way of moving through the world and not just the specific qualifications they're going to end up with. Sometimes, too, uh, there are other dynamics where, you know, Christian schools have have perhaps been selective within an area or are well-funded because of their donor bases or whatever, and so can actually offer, you know, facilities and opportunities and so on. So there's a whole range of reasons why people get drawn in that direction, I think. Do you think that connection between often faith schools are more elite education or, you know, they're, they're more prestigious schools, they've been around for longer. Um, is that a natural or a problematic association? I don't think it's a natural association. In fact, you know, I could point to Christian schools worldwide that are precisely at the other end of the scale uh, that, that have actually taken it as part of their Christian mission to provide schools for those that don't have schools, students who have difficulty accessing regular schooling because of uh, because of their relationship to the legal system or to drugs or to um, learning difficulties or you know for a variety of reasons. So I don't I certainly don't think there's any natural connection between Christian schools and high end elite schools. I think there are places where historically that has happened, but Christian schools don't belong at any specific place along the along the socioeconomic scale. Do you think that those schools who are kind of the more elite schools that are Christian and want to be Christian in some distinct way, do they have a particular responsibility about how they do that? Yeah, I think they have some challenges because uh, I, I just like I think anything Christian faces challenges once it achieves power. <laughs> it's the same with sometimes with Christian politics and, and, and so on, that 
because quite central to Christianity are ideas like humility and charity and service. And, you know, the New Testament really isn't about trying to claw your way to the top of the pile and make sure you're in charge so that everything goes right. <laughs> so how do you how do you not betray that set of values in the way that you then enact Christian schooling? So I remember once being in a school, uh, seeing a, uh, a school assembly in a faith-based school and, and seeing one of the one of the school leaders, a deputy, sort of lean over the podium at the end of the assembly and announce a prayer. And then with his eyes open and kind of glowering out across the uh, across the assembled students, he prayed something along the lines of, uh, Lord, help us to work hard today and not to run down the corridors and to be respectful to our teachers and to follow the school rules. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> You're dismissed. Right? <laughs> God's and, very uh, into enforcing. The so rules. yeah, so so sometimes even in terms of the basic rituals and practices of schools, uh, there's there's an education theorist, Peter McLaren. He wrote he wrote a, a book called Schooling as a Ritual Performance, based on studying uh, a Catholic school in Toronto for a number of years. And one interesting snippet in that book was uh, in his conversations with the teachers there. They came to the conclusion that what prayer often meant in that school was shut up. We're about to start learning. The, the way it actually functioned was as a crowd control device to get children to be quiet after they'd just come in off the playground before you started the class. And so it became less about the spiritual life or talking to God or whatever and became part of the control mechanisms of school. That's why it's not just elite schools that have that temptation, but all schools, because schools tend to come with a set of control mechanisms, a set of practices and so on. And then trying to make that realistically mesh with a set of Christian commitments is not an easy task because school brings its own momentum with it. You've said there that education is never neutral as an enterprise, which makes sense, but we do actually often think of, we imagine that there's such a thing as a neutral education or a default kind of no frills sort of education. What's going on there that we're missing? I think what's going on there is what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. Uh, in other words, at any given time and place, we internalize uh, a shared set of coordinates for interpreting the world. We start to imagine the world in certain ways. We start to imagine that those things are just normal, that this is the way that it's always been. And as long as what's happening in the school curriculum matches our social imaginary, uh, then it looks normal, right? It, it looks like the way it always has been and it couldn't be any other. So an example I've been using the last few days talking with, with teachers in, uh, in Sydney is uh, I, I show them a page out of a out of a school textbook that that has a title that says the Indian Ocean tsunami uh, 2004, and then there's a photograph of people on a beach with a huge wave hitting the beach, and then there's a text that explains that a tsunami is a is a large wave and that it comes from the Japanese word for a harbor wave and and so on, and I ask people to identify what school subject do you think this textbook page is from, and people guess natural sciences, geography, history, maybe. Nobody ever guesses, unless they've seen it before, mathematics. And in fact, it's from a mathematics textbook. And so then we talk about, so how did you know that this was not a mathematics textbook, right? It wasn't sending the right signals clearly for you to think this is what a math textbook is supposed to look like. And people say things like, well, there are human beings in the picture. Like, apparently, you're not allowed to have people in a math textbook. <laughs> Maths is not human. And, uh, and, and again, I've seen human beings in math textbooks, but usually they're doing something scientific or, or something, you know, that we associate with mathematics. Uh, they're not supposed to be running away from things on a beach, and there's too much affect in the picture. The title's wrong. The title should be differential equations or something. It shouldn't name a point in history. The text is wrong. It shouldn't give us definitions of geographical terms. Uh, someone will often say there are no numbers, which is interesting because there's a date right at the top of the page, but <laughs> it's the wrong kind of numbers. They're not mathy mm. numbers. And what this starts to, to reveal is we've actually, all of us, whether we've ever thought about it or not, we have this shared story about what a mathematics textbook is supposed to look like. 
and that includes that that it has lots of numbers, that the title is a mathematical concept, that it only has pictures of people in lab coats, that the examples are all to do with science, technology, sports, and personal finance. Um, <laughs> and there's this very sort of closed world. Now, what the authors of this particular unit did was they decided to try something in a, in a whole other direction, and it was a Christian project. They started from, can you use mathematics to describe the shape of a wave? Sure you can. How about the acceleration of a wave? Yeah, you can do that as well. Can you use mathematics to describe the magnitude of the vibrations created by an earthquake in the Pacific Ocean floor? Well, yeah, you can. If you can do those things, can you use mathematics to develop early warning systems that reduce the number of fatalities from tidal waves following Pacific Ocean earthquakes? Well, you can do that too. So it actually turns out that our capacity to do math is not just connected to our ability to balance our personal finances or figure out the average speed of a train traveling from New York to Boston or, you know, whatever. But we, we use mathematics for things like natural disaster mitigation. And then you it feel goes like on. no one in that class is going to say, why are we doing maths? This is no, when right. will I ever use this? It implies a whole different set of reasons for why mathematics might be important. And the, the point here is not that Christian mathematics has to be about, you know, disaster relief. It's It's just... I think often when Christians come at curriculum, they do tend to start asking questions like, why is this all focused on the utilitarian, the financial, the economic, the consumer? Uh, because the really important questions in life are actually about meaning and purpose and service and, and suffering and care and love of neighbor. That can trigger a different set of questions when you start asking what kind of examples to use in the curriculum, what kind of story to tell. But of course, you, you, you show that textbook unit, even though it's it's a math textbook unit that gets used in some schools and teaches mathematics, but most people are not able to recognize it as a mathematics textbook unit. Not because we all took courses on how to design mathematics textbooks, but because we have this shared story that we just learned by growing up in our society of what math class is supposed to look like. So as long as math class looks like that shared story we've got, we think it's neutral. We think it's just been this way since the start of creation, and this is always what math textbooks look like. And usually it's just what they look like for the last 10 years. So what is the kind of the narrative for our lives or our jobs or who we are meant to be as people of that kind of apparently neutral secular education, whether that's at a public school or mm -hmm. at a university? Well, I started my career teaching in secondary schools and I was teaching uh, French, German and Russian. And what started to dawn on me gradually, I'd actually become a Christian a few years before I became a teacher uh, and I uh, didn't have a church background, but... Uh, I looked at my textbooks and what we spent most of our time learning to do in language class was to talk about ourselves and to buy things from people in other countries. Uh, we spent a lot of time learning how to say in French and German, uh, this is my name, this is my family, this is my favorite food, I like this music, I don't like biology. This is what I did last weekend, this is what I'm going to do next weekend. I would like two train tickets to Hamburg. I would like the steak and fries. I would like a hotel room for two <laughs> nights. Right? And, and we spent an awful lot of time, as I say, talking about ourselves or getting other people to give us things. Um, every textbook I used had a subchapter set aside to discuss how to complain. Uh, <laughs> and it was usually connected with restaurants you or hotels. definitely need traveling in Europe. Exactly. <laughs> so it usually to do with either being, being able to send the food back in the restaurant or get something corrected with your hotel room. Now, none of those same textbooks had a chapter on how to console someone or on how to encourage someone. So the, the implicit message of the textbooks was that the reason why we learn other people's languages uh, is, is so that we can obtain the goods and services that we deserve and so that we can tell people about ourselves. It wasn't that the people who speak those languages are important. The dissonance between that and my own identity as someone who'd recently become a Christian and was trying to figure that out as well, right, and was starting to read Christian books and try and figure out what the Bible said and all the rest of it, was starting to think, well, when I actually, the basic Christian impulse is love your neighbor as yourself and then love the foreigner as yourself in Leviticus 19, that 
you know, human beings per se, regardless of what language they speak and their identity, are human and are my neighbour and are to receive my care. So maybe the reason I learn other people's languages is because other people are important. And so maybe the implied trajectory shouldn't be learn this language, it will help you vacation in Germany, or or learn this language, it will help you get ahead in some way. It should be, are there people whose stories you need to hear that you don't know how to listen to right now? We often talk about learning to speak another language. We never talk about learning to hear another language, uh, as if the reason for learning another language is so you can bore more of the world with your opinion. <laughs> so that was the start of me getting sensitized in my own classroom to looking at the textbooks I was using, which were just the standard off-the-shelf ones on the market at the time. They were all pretty similar. And saying the implied future here is basically of a, a fairly affluent consumer who travels regularly, uh, who needs to be able to get hotel rooms and buy food while on vacation in other countries. Uh, so it, it's sort of imagining us in terms of affluence and consumption uh, and economic well-being. But it's not really imagining us as people who listen to other people's stories or as people who care about members of the culture we're visiting who don't work in hotels and uh, or as people who might want to talk about the meaning of life and not just the price of a hamburger. So did your faith then end up making a difference to the way you taught languages? It did, yeah. I mean, that started me on a journey that's been going on for several decades now, and I've ended up writing books and textbooks and curriculum resources, and that's why I'm in Australia. So yes, I uh, started trying to redesign my language curriculum around this notion that uh, you know, if God doesn't listen to all the English language prayers first and cue the rest for later, right? that if, if maybe part of love your neighbor is, is honoring the full humanity of, of others, then maybe in my language curriculum, I need to start working with other people's stories more. So I started working with other teachers. We designed units. For instance, I've got a two-week unit that I designed a while back with someone that uh, I'm still using that's based around the oral history of a uh, of a 93-year-old German housewife who lived through both world wars and was a refugee several times and, you know, all of 20th century history is there. Uh, but just getting students to practice listening to her telling her life story and the different choices she made and the values informing those choices and so on. So starting to work with that kind of material rather than the supermarket dialogues, the cafe dialogues, etc., and still covering the grammar and the vocabulary that we would have learned otherwise. You're listening to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. Professor David Smith wants us to think differently about how we do education. But this is not just a classroom thing. It's about how you build or change a school culture. It's about how we value achievement and how we do discipline and how we arrange desks and any number of other things. One of the questions being asked about Christian education in Australia right now is, can it be harmful, and especially for LGBTQ students? Are these kids safe in religious schools? I asked David about this. But first we talked about whether a Christian teacher might have something distinctive to offer something that even parents who aren't religious might be happy about. Well, it's difficult to generalise because, you know, all Christian teachers are still in a process of trying to figure this all out. Uh, and many of us le have learned to be teachers in particular contexts and so on. So most of us are still trying to figure out how being Christian relates to being a teacher. And again, not just talk Christianity, but to, to try to figure out what this looks like in practices. So... Uh, a science teacher that I know locally has been thinking a lot about the nature of community in her classroom and trying to get students to pay attention to each other's needs and not just be individualistically there for their own grade and their own success um, and, and leave everybody else for the teacher to worry about. She has a practice of 
the students taking turns to be the person who's responsible for everyone else for the day. And then if someone else is off sick, they have to notice that, that they're off sick. They have to contact them and find out what's happening. They have to make sure they have a good set of notes from the class and then help to welcome them back into the class the next day and help them pick up the threads uh, so that the students are actually drawn into the process of caring for each member of the community even when they're absent. So that's an example of taking something that's not just talking about Christian beliefs but trying to work it down into into the structure of classroom practices. Now, that's not the kind of thing that everyone is going to be opposed to, even if they're not Christian. The whole idea of education is formation, mm-hmm. not just, you know, giving mm-hmm. information to students. I've read there's a classic quote from George Orwell about his education at, I think, Eton and other places and how he studied Greek for like 10 years and in his 30s can't remember the Greek alphabet, but that the thing that sticks by you till your grave, if you don't do anything about it, is the snobbery right. of that system. Right. Um, and thinking about, you know, what sticks with students, what might stick with them till their graves. Right. How does that kind of thing happen in an education? Yeah, there's a lot of implicit formation that happens in schools just by the way that we run things. So, um, you know, the fact that students are often in individual grades tends to encourage them to think about performance as an individual thing, for example, or the way that we arrange the furniture or um, dress codes, etc. There's all kinds of implicit formation taking place that's very value-laden. And, and the formation question is one of the reasons why we have to think better about the relationship between beliefs and practices rather than just thinking there are some faith-based schools where we talk about theology all the time and other schools that are not that somehow where formation isn't happening. Um, I think it's more complex than that. I was talking to a student at my own institution uh, a year or two back who uh, who said, I was in this class where uh, at the start of the semester, the professor opened the semester by talking about how this was a Christian learning community and it was really important for everyone to come to class because everyone was a valued member of the community and their voice mattered and each person was made in God's image and gifted by God and uh, we needed to pull together as a Christian learning community and that was one of the things we should focus on this semester. And the student said to me, um, you know, that she thought this was quite a beautiful thought. She hadn't actually been in a class before that started with this explicit emphasis on what kind of community are we going to be and and how does that relate to faith? And uh, she paused and then she said it took me two or three weeks to figure out it wasn't true because, in fact, the way the class was taught, there was a lot of lecturing. As long as I got a good set of notes, if I missed the class, I could easily catch up and my being there or not there didn't really affect how I did on the exam. And uh, it just didn't really seem like the way the class was taught that my voice did actually matter very much. Now, there are other ways of teaching that class that would be much more consistent with the vision that was described at the start of the semester. So the formation question then becomes, what's the relationship between the values that are espoused when we talk about what we're doing and when we when we sort of name the story that, that informs our, our educational practice? And how does that play out in all of these small daily choices about how to teach, how to arrange the furniture, how to, how to design homework? Um, how does that become formational? Um, here's an example from a couple of years back. I was talking to uh, a, a group of teachers at the school my children attended. And this is a Christian school. And uh, it was a Christian school in a tradition that actually has quite a strong theology of parents being responsible for their uh, their children's growth and the teachers are there to come alongside parents and, and sort of help the parents in their God-given responsibility for their children. And yet one of the things I'd noticed as my daughter went through high school uh, was that after getting up at six in the morning and getting a bus to school at seven something and being in school all day till half past three and then getting home and resting for an hour, my daughter would then have several hours of homework, which was almost always designed to be done alone. And, and that therefore during the semester, we hardly saw our daughter. 
Uh, we sort of got her back in the vacations and suddenly she became conversational and interested in things and so on. And uh, so I, I was talking to the teachers about this and just sort of ranting a little bit about how um, school was one of the negative influences on my family life because it just prevented interaction. Uh, what started happening after that conversation was a couple of weeks later, my daughter came home one evening and about eight o'clock in the evening, she appeared in the family room. And she said, do you guys have some time? Because I've got this homework from my religion class. My religion teacher says I'm supposed to talk to you about whether you grew up Christian or in the church or, <laughs> or how that was for you. And can, can we talk about that? I have to get you to sign this thing that says that we talked about <laughs> it and take it back. And then a week later, it was the uh, government class. And uh, she had to discuss with us whether we thought it was OK for the government to use drones to spy on its citizens. And then there was a homework from a media class where we all had to choose a TV show and watch it together and then discuss together what its values were. And so we started getting this string of homeworks that actually created all these wonderful family interactions, right? And and her report at the end of this whole series of homework, she said she learned more from this than sitting filling out worksheets, that she really valued the conversations. And, and you know, some, sometimes the reason we weren't having deep conversations in the evening wasn't because we didn't like each other. It's just we were all tired and it was the end of the day. But the teacher actually had the power to trigger that, right? That teachers are one of the few groups of people in society who can tell other people what to do in their discretionary time. And by and large, they obey. <laughs> so, uh, so, so the teachers were actually able to trigger all of these interesting sort of family interactions in the evening. And I sort of thought, what a, what a great thing to be able to do with homework. So I mean, that's, it's an example of trying to rethink, again, the mundane practices of education in ways that could turn out to be quite formational, not only for the student, but for the wider community. That, that in this case, we're, again, we're grounded in a conversation about, well, we say we believe that families are really important and that we care about relationships between parents and their students, but we seem to design homework as if that weren't the case. One of the concerns that a lot of people have, particularly in the current climate, is for maybe students who have different beliefs in the classroom, but particularly minority students, um, maybe LGBTQ students mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within, say, a Christian educational context, uh, with the added layer of kind of the power dynamics of, yeah. well, the teacher is the one who's in charge and, right. you know, can that at best sideline, at worst harm right. those students? It can. Um, it, and it can do that in secular schools as well, right? So, you know, there, are, there aren't schools that are immune to that, right? Every school has got its power dynamics and its insensitive teachers. And it's, again, we're all, we're all learning how to, how to deal with diversity. Um, but being a Christian teacher, I think, actually offers some some significant resources for learning to deal with that. Because, again, if I'm trying to learn to be Christian, I'm trying to learn humility. I'm trying to learn to love my neighbor. I'm trying to learn to pay attention to other human beings and regard them, see them as made in the image of God, regardless of who they are or um, or, or what kind of identity they, they come with or what needs they come with. Uh, and it also focuses me on, on needs and care more than on status. Uh, so there was an incident uh, last summer when I was teaching a, a graduate curriculum course. And so this is a course for people who've been teaching for a few years and they're taking a master's in education and they're learning about designing curriculum. And after a few days, I have them do a piece of writing that's kind of a, a self-critical autobiography. So they basically have to write about all those aspects of their own identity that are likely to bias the way they think about curriculum and make them not think about things their students might need. So they have to write about their ethnicity, uh, their gender, 
their socioeconomic class, their, their wealth level, their politics, their theology, the places they've lived, right, to try to actually drill down to what are the factors that have made me see the world a certain way that might not be the way all my students see the world? And so how can I become aware of that so that I can start to control for it in the way that I design curriculum for Sounds my students? Sounds confronting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting exercise to get people to try to think about. And uh, so one student in that class was a, a school leader actually from Nigeria. And uh, in the first paragraph of her piece of writing, I was reading these over the weekend, and uh, she, she basically wrote that during the first week of class, it had been very difficult for her to learn from me. Uh, because I had a British accent and because she belonged to a tribe in Nigeria that had been treated very badly by the British uh, and there had been violence and she couldn't help associating my accent with the oppressor of her tribal group. So this now gives me a choice, right? What do I do with this? Uh, fortunately, this was the weekend. I had a couple of days to think about it and try to <laughs> try to make a good choice rather than <laughs> reacting out of my insecurity Reflex, as a teacher yeah. who's just been told, you know, it's not working, <laughs> right? You know, your students can't learn from you and you're, you're probably evil as well. Uh, so uh, so what I did on the, uh, the Monday morning, uh, had a word with the student before class to make sure that this plan was okay. But I said to her, I said, uh, I think it'd be great if the rest of the class could learn something about your story and, uh, and, and about what the British did and why my accent might be problematic, because that'll actually help us learn what we're trying to learn here about how your identity affects how you come across as a teacher. And so this might actually help all of our learning. And so I asked her to take 20 minutes at the start of class, basically, to teach the class about how she was reacting and why she was reacting and what the history of that was and what Britain had done and, and so on. And, uh, and I was also very careful during that not to kind of hover at the side like I was the, you know, the yeah, official the person and, sort of behind her mm. shoulder, making sure she didn't say anything wrong. <laughs> in fact, I went and sat on the floor in the corner uh, to sort of like take myself out of the picture and also to intentionally try to take a, a more humble place in the room where I was where I was an observer. And not only did that open up a fascinating discussion for my students about how teaching related to power and forgiveness and suffering and all kinds of things. Uh, but also, she actually said to me several days later, she said, it's gone away now. I can learn from you now. Because it had removed this, uh, this sense of, um, of disempowerment that had come from the initial just me being in charge. So I do think there are ways in which Christians, I don't, know if we, I don't think we always consistently do this, but um, ideally, I think there are ways that Christians can draw on the resources of their own faith in terms of learning how to serve, learning how to step down, learning how to not lord it over that can be tr tremendously educationally powerful in classrooms uh, f for students who are bringing all kinds of identities to the classroom. I mean, on the, the one you mentioned that I know is controversial right here, I've been in a number of different schools in Sydney the last few days, uh, Christian schools of various different kinds. And I've had conversations with a bunch of teachers about how the uh, the LGBTQ plus questions are being are being handled here right now. And I was just struck by the degree that even people who had, you know, quite clear and conservative viewpoints on that were also eager to say to me, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to care for and serve all of our students, right? And we're not actually looking to kick anybody out or, you know, create barriers for their learning and, and so on. So sometimes these things get blown up into warfare categories when they're discussed in the media. Sometimes on the ground, it's more complex that people's viewpoints on the topic don't necessarily correlate one-to-one -one with, with abusing their power when they, when they interact with people who are coming from a different place. But teachers care about their students. Teachers, by and large, care about their students. Uh, there are exceptions, as in every profession. But uh, yeah, teachers, by and large, got into teaching because they wanted to do good things for students. This was Life and Faith. I'm Natasha Moore, and I've been speaking with David Smith. 
He's a professor of education and he's written a bunch of books about this stuff. The latest one is called On Christian Teaching, Practicing Faith in the Classroom. I really enjoyed having this conversation. If you enjoyed listening to it, then I'm sure you know a parent or a teacher or a student who you think would also find it interesting. There are a gazillion podcasts out there, so if you think this one is worth listening to, do us a favour and let other people know.